You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. Hi, everybody. Liam here. Just real quick before we start today's episode, I wanted to mention that this month, September 2021, is the five-year anniversary of the very first East Bay Yesterday podcast. Looking back after 79 episodes, ah, man, I feel like other than marrying my wife, starting the show was the best decision I ever made. Uh, I never would have been able to do this for so long without the emotional and uh, financial support of you guys, the listeners. Uh, so I just wanted to thank you and, uh, and, and thank everyone who tells their friends about the show or, you know, comes on my boat tours, like all of you. I'm so grateful for your time and your love and your tweets. And I will do my best to repay you by keeping this show going for many, many more years to come. Yeah, and if anyone wants to help me plan like a party maybe for the 100th episode, uh, I think we should do that. Hopefully the, the pandemic will be over by then. But on to today's topic, uh, which is the history of Chinese and Chinese Americans in California, uh, specifically Oakland's Chinatown. My guest is William G. Wong, who is an expert on that subject because he was born in Chinatown in 1940. He grew up working in his family's restaurant there, and uh, throughout his pioneering journalism career, which spanned everywhere from the Daily Kale to the Oakland Tribune to the Wall Street Journal. He wrote about Asian American issues from an Asian American perspective, something that was practically unheard of at mainstream media outlets in the 1970s and 80s and is, of course, still far too rare. But I mean, Bill uh, was really a trailblazer in that regard. Since then, William Wong has published two books, one titled Oakland's Chinatown and another called Yellow Journalist, which is a compilation of some of his most important columns and articles. And I'm happy to report that Bill is currently working on a memoir about his relationship with his father, a man who you'll be hearing a lot about in this episode. So stay tuned for that. Okay, last thing before we jump into the Q&A. I went for a walk around Chinatown this morning just to refresh my memory about why it's one of my favorite Oakland neighborhoods. And yeah, of course, I ate some incredible food, uh, too much food, and checked out the ever-changing array of phenomenal street art. But besides all that, the thing that I love about Chinatown is the people. And I don't just mean like my friends who live or work there. I mean, maybe more than any other neighborhood in Oakland, the, the street life in Oakland Chinatown is just bustling from morning till night. Every sidewalk has pedestrians, lots of them. The markets are spilling out into the sidewalks. Uh, you look through windows and you see people like digging into giant bowls of noodles that looked amazing. And, you know, you look in the grocery shop windows and people are weighing up like giant fish or like a piece of fruit you've never seen before. And it just feels like a real city, a real city that's alive. And that's just what's happening on the surface level. So, you know, there's a lot of activity, life, culture, politics, everything happening behind the scenes. 
And that's what we're going to talk about today with Mr. William G. Wong. What's the story of Oakland Chinatown's history? How did it start and how did it get to where it is today? This is East Bay Yesterday. I'm Liam O'Donoghue. Keep it locked. Bill, let's get started by talking a little bit about your family history for the listeners who who don't know about your long, long history, your family's long history in Oakland. How and when and why did your family first immigrate to California? It starts with my father. Um, My father was born in the mid-1890s, and he was born in Hoisan, which is one of the eight counties uh, west of the Pearl River Delta, which is the greater Hong Kong area. And he was born there in the mid-1890s, and in 1912, his parents sent him to Oakland. From what we can find out, he came because uh, his parents wanted him to come here, uh, make some money, and send the money back, which is a kind of a classic story of uh, uh, boys and young men coming from China in those days. So he got to Oakland in 1912. He was roughly 16 or 17 years old. And he came to Oakland because other people from his clan, the G clan, G-E-E as spelled in English, had set up in Oakland and other parts of the Bay Area. And the man that he worked for was a G herbalist in Oakland Chinatown. So he worked there, he lived there, and he went to Lincoln School. So that's where he learned English. He worked at the herb shop, and in 1919, starting in 1919 until 1933, he went back to China each time, and we figured it was the first time was to uh, marry somebody that his parents, his mother probably had arranged for a woman from the Yi village, nearby the Ji village in Hoisan. So back and forth he went, he fathered three daughters in that span of uh, 1919 to 1933. Yeah, I was gonna ask you about how he kept going back and forth and how he eventually brought the rest of your family over because I know that the United States passed the Chinese Exclusion Act in, I believe it was 1882, which essentially severely restricted Chinese immigration to the United States. I think to this day, still the only immigration law ever passed by the federal government that specifically targeted one nationality. Is that correct? Absolutely. It was um, the first immigration law, and it was specifically targeted at the Chinese. So there were... And it was kind of spurred by the backlash because there was a... um, like an economic recession in the 1870s, right? And there was all these Chinese men who had come to work on the railroads, and after the railroads were done and the jobs dried up, basically the the white people who were essentially running the country didn't want competition. Henceforth, they decided to pass this very racist, discriminatory law to either kick Chinese people out or prevent them from coming to the country, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. It goes back to the end of the transcontinental railroad building of the Chinese working on the western end and basically Irish immigrants and or Irish Americans working on the eastern end 
And at the end, in 1869, when it was finished, there was a too many workers and not enough jobs. And the Chinese had a reputation of working for less money than the white Irish workers. And there became a situation where the confluence of economic and racial factors played a hand. And an Irishman named Dennis Carney uh, formed the Working Man's Party in San Francisco in the early 1870s. Uh, and their slogan was, the Chinese must go. Um, which is a fairly simple slogan. Um, and then it, fl it moved from San Francisco and California and eventually got to Congress. But Congress did pass in 1882 the Chinese Exclusion Act. And under the Chinese Exclusion Act, my father and others had to find interesting ways of getting into America. And uh, very briefly, the paper Sun Scheme was born, uh, especially after the 1906 San Francisco earthquake and fire, which destroyed all sorts of documentation, uh, birth records, uh, maybe death records. So the Chinese by that time had a very well-developed network through San Francisco and Oakland and other Chinatowns. And some of those guys probably said, hey, there's now an opportunity for us to claim that we may be sons of natives, which is a legal category for entry uh, because there's no way to prove otherwise. They figured out a good loophole. Uh, that was a loophole, and my father and mother and three older sisters uh, came in through the paper son, paper daughter route. So they basically claimed, my father claimed to be a son of a native, and he was allowed in. But back and forth through these uh, trips to China, he had to come back and be interviewed by the immigration authorities, claimed to have three daughters, which was true, and three sons, which was not true. And while my father and I never talked about this, in uh, subsequent years I have concluded that he had his own paper uh, sun scheme by being able to sell those three paper sun slots to some other people who weren't directly related. So he made some money, and again, this is not him alone doing this, but that was the way that a lot of Chinese people were getting around the Chinese Exclusion Act. And I know another little fib that he told that I read about in your book was uh, that the way that he got your mom in the country was by claiming that she was his sister, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> well, again, the law didn't allow a Chinese man, even a son of a native, to bring in a wife from China because the, the intent of the uh, U.S. government in passing the Chinese Exclusion Act was, among other things, not wanting a Chinese-American community to develop. So if you don't have wives, you won't have families. It's amazing the you know tenacity and ingenuity that people have used to get around our nation's very restrictive and, and often very racist uh, immigration system. But I want to fast forward a little bit to um, like the World War II era because that's about the time that your family started the business that you were essentially raised in. And I'm talking about the Great China Restaurant in Chinatown. So give me a little 
context for how that business started and what it was like to grow up in Chinatown, specifically working in a restaurant in the in the 1940s and 50s? Yeah, the, the beginning of the Great China was 1943, right in the middle of the war. But let me uh, precede that the beginnings of the restaurant with what my father was doing right before that. Um, In the 30s, he was running a um, grocery store slash lottery. The grocery store was the so-called legal business. The lottery was the illegal business. He was not alone in the way Chinatown operated in those days. You know, the lottery has been part of Chinatown in Oakland and many other Chinatowns for many, many years before that. It was an illegal business, but it was well known to the authorities. So he was doing that and he got into some trouble with the business, decided to uh, do something else. And when the war started, he got a shipyard job because during wartime, There were a lot of military establishments in the immediate Bay Area, and it was a good-paying job. And that was, as a side note, that was how so many uh, African Americans came up, especially from Texas and Louisiana, uh, for jobs in the war industry in the Bay Area, which increased Oakland's black population uh, greatly at the time, because Oakland before that was vast majority white, very tiny Asian population in Chinatown, along with some Japanese and some Filipinos. There were some black people in Oakland at the time, but it was during the war that the black population grew. So my father was doing uh, shipyard work, but one of his um, clanmates in Chinatown, who was a higher up in the gambling industry, uh, said to my father, in effect, hey, the war's going to end pretty soon. Now you have seven children. Uh, you should think about something more stable than a shipyard job. So he offered to lend him $3,000 to open this restaurant on Webster Street. So my father said, okay, I will uh, uh, borrow the money open it up and call it the Great China. Great. And, and bef- you know, before we get into the whole restaurant story, I just want to pause for a second because there's this really dramatic and, and kind of terrifying story that you tell in the book about how your dad um, almost lost his life through his involvement with the, that underground lotto. And so that's probably another good reason for him getting out of the, the lotto business and getting into the restaurant because it was a dangerous operation, it sounds like, sometimes. Yeah, very much so. He was operating uh, his lottery business with some partners. And the way that worked was, uh, excuse the detail, but you need to know a few of the details to understand why he got into trouble. Um, Customers would come in with a nickel or a dime to buy lottery tickets. And the uh, seller, like my father was, could either pass on the sale of that ticket to the company that ran these lotteries uh, and take a percentage. And therefore, if the better won, then the company that bought the, the original bet would have to pay. So that was a way of hedging uh, your bets. One day, my father decided to keep 
the money that the better gave him because it was a fairly big bet. Legend has it it might have been a dollar, which was a big bet in those days. So my father was gambling himself, saying, oh, this, this guy's not going to win. I'll keep the dollar so that I'll have more than the pennies that I would otherwise get. Well, unfortunately for my father, this guy won. So therefore, my father was liable for the entire uh, winnings he had to pay himself, and his partners didn't like that because they lost a lot of money. And my father said to his partners, you know, give me some time, I'll pay you back. Well, the partners weren't very patient, and um, they sent a partner who also happened to be a paper brother of my father's to 725 Harrison Street, which happened to be the place I was born, and the guy who was sent by his partners to collect the money pulled out a pistol, shot my father four times in the arm and the body somewhere, and that was a huge shock. I was not yet born. Uh, my, some of my sisters were home and they were very young, and my mother was in the kitchen cooking dinner for this man because he, he came to visit my father under false pretenses. So after the shooting, she ran after him in Chinatown, ran up Harrison Street to 8th Street, up Webster to 9th, and a couple of other people saw this happening. Uh, they knew my mother and they chased after the guy and grabbed him and there happened to be a cop wandering around Chinatown about the same time. So the shooter got caught. My father went to Highland Hospital, at the time the county hospital, and luckily survived. Uh, and after that, he got better. And finally, after all of that, this uh, clanmate said, let me uh, lend you $3,000, open this restaurant, you can take care of your family. So from that point on, from 1943, the business just took off because the, again, back to the, the point of Oakland and the Bay Area being one of the main places uh, for the war industry, a lot of people came in to, for the jobs, not only the African-Americans, but white people from all over the country. And they were so desperate for employees, Chinese for the first time maybe worked outside of Chinatown or worked for a white employer or for the government for the first time in large numbers. So in effect, Chinatown's fortunes were really boosted by the military bases of the military-industrial complex at the time. And all those workers had to eat, and a lot of them ended up at your family's restaurant. A lot of them did. So tell me about that. What kind of food did you serve? What was it like growing up in Chinatown at that time? What was it like running a restaurant? Well, what was very interesting, you asked about the food. The Great China became what I call the hybrid Chinese-slash-American restaurant. And... It took as a model several of these hybrid restaurants that were very popular in San Francisco Chinatown. And what they would serve, it would be on the one side of the menu would be Western food, things like meatloaf, prime ribs of beef, uh, fried halibut, liver and onions, spaghetti and meatballs. It would be 
you know the classics basically diner yeah, food. right yeah. diner food uh-huh. and a lot of the chinese chefs learned how to cook like that uh, especially the one that was at the great china that my father hired he learned it at the cal fraternities and sororities Oh, he was like an in-house chef for the was. for the white fraternities right. at Cale. Okay. And that was a pattern in those days. Oh. These uh, Greek letter societies at Cal, for example, would be hiring Chinese chefs who would be buying produce from Chinese vegetable peddlers and probably meats uh, from Chinese meat markets. Right. And those vegetable peddlers are probably getting their vegetables from like Chinese farmers because there was a lot more agriculture exactly. in the East Bay at that right. time. Right. That was also part of the like whole Chinese, ecosystem. That was a whole part of the Chinese eco, uh, economic ecosystem yeah. at the time. Wow. So that, that was the food on the one side. On the other side was basic Cantonese, chow mein, uh, egg foo young, chop suey, fried prawns, fried rice. Was that, was the Chinese food more traditional Chinese or was that more like Americanized Chinese? My memory of it was that it was basic Cantonese, but also dumbed down for a non-Chinese palate, even though we had a fair number of Chinatown customers who ate the basic stuff. But my family's restaurant and other Chinatown restaurants in those days had to dumb it down because there were still not enough Chinese-only customers to make a go of it. So it was a pretty dumbed-down Cantonese. But the American food was very popular as well. So there would be people coming in and ordering from both sides of the menu. And it was so busy during the war years uh, that, remember the $3,000 that my father borrowed, he was able to pay that back within months. Well, and I know your labor costs were pretty low, too, because you, they basically had the kids working around the clock for, uh, were you even paid, or was that basically just your duty? Right. No, no. My sisters and I, and they, I had six older sisters, almost all of whom worked as waitresses and got tips. That was their pay. I eventually became a waiter after starting off in uh, non-waiting duties at the restaurant when I was in my, but 10 years old or so. And we, the kids didn't get paid. I know that your family made enough money from the restaurant to move out of Chinatown over to a neighborhood a little bit east of the lake called uh, Cleveland Heights. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit, because I know that before the 1950s and probably even in some neighborhoods well after the 50s, there was a lot of uh, segregation, racial segregation uh, in Oakland and throughout the East Bay. I mean, the suburbs were basically almost completely closed to people of color. But even in Oakland here, there was a lot of uh, discrimination. So what was that transition for you like moving from this neighborhood that was essentially all Chinese or all Asian to you know, was Cleveland Heights pretty mixed at the time? Was it majority white? What was that like as a, as a young boy? You know, even though it's only two miles away, it probably felt like a whole different world. You're right about that. In 1948, by that time, we were nine in our family. In our unit, we were living in this cramped two-story Victorian on Harrison Street. So with the earnings from the restaurant, he paid $16,000 in cash for this 
much bigger, more modern house than we had. At the time, it was in a neighborhood that later became uh, called China Hill. But when we were up there, we were maybe the third or fourth Chinese family that moved up. Because what happened after the war, I mean, the Chinese Exclusion Act ended in 1943. That began the slow process of Chinatown Chinese who were, Chinatown and uh, the Chinese in Oakland were mainly socially segregated in Chinatown with some families in West Oakland and a few of the wealthiest Chinatown men, especially the gambling bosses or uh, Lu Hing, who was a uh, tycoon, started the Pacific Coast Cannery in West Oakland. I did a whole episode about him for anyone who wants to know more about Lu Hing, spoke to some of his descendants and that is, a, that is a wild story. Right. So if anyone hasn't heard that one yet, uh, check out the Liu Hing episode. I'm glad you did that. Uh, anyway, um, for a few of the richest guys in Chinatown, they would use white friends to buy homes, for example, on Lakeshore near the lake or somewhere outside of Chinatown. But the, on the name on the deed apparently was their white friend, even though it was the Chinese man and his family that uh, paid the money. Um, by the late 40s, the possibilities of us, uh, of Chinatown families moving outside of Chinatown became greater. The Cleveland Heights area apparently was an area which was beginning to open up to Chinatown families, and we were one of the first to move up there. Um, I was seven or eight years old when that happened. And I remember that I didn't spend a lot of time up on Spruce Street, uh, right near MacArthur Boulevard, because we always were working at the restaurant. And I was going to Chinese school for part of that time. So I spent most of my time in Chinatown during the day hours. So I didn't get a great flavor of that neighborhood uh, until a bit later. But Chinatown has always been, for the, what I tell people, the first 20 years of my life was my universe. And you asked earlier about what it was like to grow up there. It was people mostly of Chinese descent, mostly speaking either the, the dialect from my parents' village or Cantonese, and then add Chinglish, which was a combination of Hoisanwa, Cantonese, and English and we were all able to communicate with one another. And it became, uh, later it became difficult to communicate with our parents, to be honest with you, because some of us, myself included, uh, really took to the English language, taught at Lincoln School, and we talked a lot of English among ourselves. So in essence, we were living sort of a multiracial, multiethnic, multilingual life in Chinatown, whereas most of our friends were mostly Chinese, a few Japanese, a few uh, Filipinos, and a handful of Koreans. Those were the four Asian ethnic groups that were in Oakland Chinatown up to the war. Right, right. And, you know, I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on kind of growing up in sort of a segregated community. And I'm thinking back to some conversations I had many, many years ago. I was involved in a project gathering oral histories from uh, elders who were uh, involved with the YMCA in San Francisco's Chinatown. 
And I remember them telling me about how growing up in a segregated community was sort of a double-edged sword because obviously it's, you know, nobody wants to grow up feeling like they're unwanted by the mainstream society uh, or have, you know, themselves or their parents face employment discrimination, housing discrimination, racist slurs, racist violence, etc. I mean, all that is, of course, just horrendous and, and unacceptable. But then on the other hand, they said that there was a, a flip side to that, which was the benefit of growing up in such a tight-knit community where everyone's kind of like looking out for each other, all your friends, most of the families you knew were within like a block or a couple block walking radius. And so even though um, there was this horrific downside to it, there was the concentration, you know, of people who come from these same family groups and from the same, you know, ethnic background, there was a lot of comfort in that. Exactly right. I, I, I hear what you're saying. There was, on the one hand, as I said earlier, Chinatown was my universe. So I didn't, you know, when you're young, you don't think about what's way outside or what your future might be like. You're enjoying the moment. And there was great comfort because as we ran around the streets of Chinatown, we sort of knew that these elders who weren't directly related to us were also either looking after us or looking to see whether we behaved. So it was kind of that kind of atmosphere. And we didn't care, we just had a lot of fun. And we didn't feel uh, necessarily oppressed at the time, but we did get the feeling when dealing with uh, the outside world, meaning the teachers at Lincoln School, who were mostly white women, even though our classmates were mostly Asian and there were a few black and few Mexicans, uh, a few whites, uh, you got the feeling, however, with American institutions, be careful when you're, when you're around uh, white adults. Uh, it may have not been said quite as explicitly, but it got into our heads uh, that white people were in charge outside of Chinatown. So while we were in Chinatown, it was great comfort. We didn't think about being, quote, discriminated against. But once we got into the edges or into uh, white Oakland, uh, we were wary. Uh, we didn't speak up the way we would at Chinese school or within ourselves. We were mouthy and snarky and sarcastic and, uh, and you know, just kids, yeah. right? Yeah. But when we were in white society, we were quiet, reserved, didn't say much and were maybe afraid to say anything at all. So that was the duality of my childhood. There's so much racist pressure, this Chinese Exclusion Act. How did Oakland's Chinatown, you know, that, that we know at 8th and Webster, how did that manage to continue to grow and thrive. I mean, one of the ways that there was a big influx was during the, um, after the 1906 earthquake. I know when a lot of uh, Chinese people, Chinese American people came from the city and settled in Oakland after that, that fire and that devastation and the looting that befell them. But yeah, it just seems astonishing that this neighborhood was, was really able to grow and thrive during all these years of the exclusion and, and all these outside uh, you know, pressures of racism and discrimination. Well, there is a linkage to San Francisco. San Francisco is the mothership of American Chinatowns. 
the gold rush brought Chinese migrants, gold seekers from the Pearl River Delta counties that I uh, mentioned earlier, and San Francisco was where they got off. And that was a launching pad for many of them to move up to the Sacramento area and then finally to the gold country. So San Francisco's Chinatown developed uh, a very complex and a very deep uh, parallel universe uh, to white society. And those Chinese who came to Oakland starting in the 1850s had linkages because back to the villages that they came from, there was a very culturally built-in uh, bondage along clan lines, uh, family and clan lines, and regional lines. And there became a very complex set of networks uh, that grew first in San Francisco and then eventually in Oakland. Uh, part of the story is that the mostly men who came over here, many of them had the intention of finding gold, making their wealth, which probably wasn't a great amount, but enough to go home and become uh, wealthy or not have to work as hard in the farms and the villages. Some of them found some gold and were able to go home. Many of them did not. So it became a matter of maybe some dishonor, uh, embarrassment. Uh, they may have told their families back home because it was a big deal in the villages that these men came from if one of their young sons, like my father, was sent to become a Gim San Hak, which meant generally a gold mountain guest. It was prestigious because these men in America who were working hard in terrible circumstances were sending back a little money which was a big deal in the villages. So they became highly respected because they were in America. And they may have said to their relatives back home, oh it's great over here when in fact it wasn't so great. So there were those kinds yeah. of stories being told, yeah. right? Yeah. So it was a matter of those men, they settled in Chinatowns. Mm -hmm. And some of them eventually were able to, like my father, bring over their China families. And even though American laws discouraged that development, the American enforcement of those laws and the white society basically was leaving Chinatown to do its own thing. Uh, as, and you mentioned the 1906 earthquake bringing over thousands and thousands of San Franciscans, some from Chinatown. Yeah. Uh, eventually, uh, roughly 2,000 San Francisco Chinese decided to stay in Oakland, therefore doubling Oakland's Chinese population from about 2,000 before the earthquake to about 4,000 after leading into the 20s. So by the time I came along in 1941, there were a whole number in the, you know, it's hard for me to estimate, but I knew, and my sisters who were older than me, uh, we all had peers who were of different clans and different names, but each of our families owned businesses, a grocery store, a um, haircut shop, 
a laundry, a restaurant. Um, Right. And, and there and were these even though, like you describe in the book, these businesses required people to basically work all day, seven days a week, you know, really, really working their butts off. But it was certainly a step up from generation or two previous. And I'm thinking of not only the railroads, but a lot of the other industries that hired Chinese men, specifically at the time Chinese laborers, were really like the most dangerous jobs imaginable and the lowest paying jobs. So, for example, a couple years ago, I did an episode about the history of the explosives industries in the East Bay. There was all kinds of explosives manufacturers. Um, first in San Francisco and Oakland, and then after a couple accidental explosions, they would move farther up the coast to uh, Pinole and Hercules and places like that. But when there were explosions, the newspaper headlines and stories would say, workers killed an explosion and then it would list two or three white people by name and then it would just say like and 20 Chinese people or I don't remember the exact language maybe it was even something derogatory but I mean these were essentially almost not even counted as like human beings by the media and so um, it just must have been um, overwhelming to live in a society like that where people people are dying in these horrible accidents and not only in the accidents of the explosive industry but i know that there were chinese workers who who really built the infrastructure of the east bay i'm thinking of projects like the construction of lake temescal or lake chabot in the oakland hills i know there was a lot of chinese workers who had come from the railroads and with that skill of building infrastructure took that to the water company is there anything you know about that like the involvement of the Chinese community in the East Bay building building up the, the infrastructure of, of this region? Well, I do know it's not the East Bay per se, which may be out of your purview, but in, uh, in Napa and, and wine country, Chinese building some of the caves where uh, wine is stored. So my ethnic mates don't get credit for what Italian-Americans and others uh, get credit for the wine industry. Uh, and you're absolutely right about the explosives. So to, for you to, to, to cite the explosive industry, as well as we know that in the building of the, of the Transcontinental Railroad, uh, the Chinese were given the most dangerous jobs of blowing up the mountains so that the railroad tunnel could be started. Uh, but the Chinese were working in agriculture in the Bay Area. And we mentioned earlier uh, the Chinese were farmers in Oakland and surrounding areas uh, and cigar factories and all sorts of basic uh, economic engines in the East Bay and all over the region uh, canning, metalworks, uh, you name it. Well, I know that some of the outside forces that, that had a big impact on, on Chinatown in, in those post-war years were things like 880 and BART, which really tore up uh, Broadway for a number, number of years when that was being um, installed. You lived through that. You, you, you saw the construction of the 880 and BART and, and even like Laney College, for example, on the other side of Chinatown. Talk a little bit about how those projects impacted that community and you, you know what the lasting legacy has been in terms of the relationship between Chinatown and, and the 
surrounding areas of Oakland. Yeah, on the on the on the broad picture, I see it as an example of systemic racism, because Oakland is not the only city in which a governmental unit, whether at the local, state, or national level, decides to redevelop urban renewal was a term that was big in the immediate post-war years. Um, right, which James Baldwin uh, fam famously called Negro removal. But in the case of, you know, the 880, for example, it was, uh, you know, Chinese removal. removal. Exactly yeah. right. And Chinatown is in an area near the uh, white civic center, uh, City Hall, you know, a good half mile, easy half mile walk. Yeah, prime real estate. Prime real estate. And not far from the estuary and what today is Jack London Square. But in the days when I was a kid, those were all residential blocks. Chinatown, commercial Chinatown, was a fairly tight six or eight blocks right around 8th and Webster. But toward Fallon and down to second or maybe even first, those were residential neighborhoods. And you'll see today the remains of some beautiful Victorians, some of them run down, but that's where a lot of Chinatown families lived. So after the war, urban renewal came along among the city planners, uh, regional planners, and they said, hey, we need a freeway. Eventually, we need a rapid transit system, or we need a community college. So once the Nimitz started building, uh, it wiped out a bunch of housing in the low uh, streets. And once BART and uh, Laney and the eventually the museum and ABAG, the Association of Bay Area Governments Building, once those projects began, the planning was probably in the 50s and the 60s and eventually through the 70s, uh, all of these public non-Chinese projects were put in, again, displacing a number of Chinese residences through eminent domain and other means. And of course, this was before Asian people or Chinese people had any representation on like city council or exactly. at the state level. There was no representation. And I mean, to be fair, some of the Chinese families may have been ready uh, to move out anyway or were attracted to whatever money was offered to them to move because at the same time they were able to begin looking outside of Chinatown for housing. So it wasn't just institutional racism at play, but that was a big part of it. So Chinatown's housing stock greatly reduced. Uh, at the same time, Chinatown commercial uh, businesses were being reduced. Uh, starting in 1965, when uh, the liberalization of the American immigration uh, laws allowed in a higher quota of immigrants from around the world, which tells the story about why today's America has become so much more multicultural, less white, a lot browner. So from that came a revival of a Chinatown 
that was dying beginning in the 50s, showing some strong comatose symptoms. But some of the Chinatown leaders were very interested in their own redevelopment plan, which in the 60s began with some of the Chinatown businessmen saying, hey, we need to do something about boosting our business. And they went to the city and there were numerous committees and planning for maybe a 24 square block redoing of Chinatown. And there was even a plan for like an 80-story tower at one point, right? There was, and I happened to be a business editor of the Oakland Tribune when there was this Hong Kong guy. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but I'm really curious about that because you you write in the book how, quote, Hong Kong money helped finance some of these big projects or was planned to... So I'm wondering, yeah, if you can talk a little bit about that role of foreign investment in Chinatown and that relationship between Chinese-American businessmen here and money that's coming in from Asia, because, of course, you know, that's still something that happens to this day. Very much so. Well, let me start by saying, as a Chinese-American growing up during the civil rights era, for me and some of my age mates and uh, more second-generation Chinese-Americans, we always thought of our identity in a Chinatown as American-only, unlinked at all to the root country, to the ancestral homeland. But in thinking back how wrong we were because there's always been a link to the homeland wherever it might be. In our case, it would be China. But Hong Kong was always, by that time, a British crown colony, was always the outlier to the communist economy. So there was so much in Hong Kong and the wealthy people were looking for places to invest, and Oakland Chinatown was one of the many places they looked. Vancouver, uh, British Columbia was another place. So Canada, other places in America, Australia was where Hong Kong money, eventually other Chinese money was coming in. So back to the story of this Hong Kong rich guy, who said, hey, I want to do an 80-story tower at the corner of maybe Broadway and 11th or maybe Franklin, that block. And the Chinatown leaders were saying, hey, that would be great. It would be near the Oakland Tribune Tower. I happened to be business editor, and we were very interested in this project. I think it would have been the tallest building west of the Mississippi at the time or something. Right. This This enormous project. Yeah, enormous plan. Yeah. Um, (laughs) uh, But later on, it was discovered that this Hong Kong developer was basically a crook. And he had problems in Hong Kong. So eventually, an associate over there was able to uh, finance the Trans-Pacific Tower, it's called, building at the corner. I believe it's at 11th Broadway and Franklin. It's next to the East Bay mud Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. also very close to the Pacific Renaissance Plaza. The other big project. Right, which which is the manifestation of this 60s idea, dream of a 24 square block redevelopment because it boiled down to four square blocks of which one corner is Trans-Pacific Tower or something, whatever it's called. But it's something like 
five or six yeah. stories, not 80. Right. And so I wanted to ask you ab about this development era, which, you know, honestly, we're still going through today because just like in throughout the rest of the Bay Area, there's often a tension between the developers who want to maximize their projects with like market rate and luxury commercial and residential construction and like community members who want more affordable housing and community benefits. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you've seen that conflict play out in in Chinatown over the years and um, if these developments that have unfolded, you know, really from the 70s onwards have resulted in a lot of uh, displacement of low-income people who used to be residents of Chinatown. Yeah, this um, class conflict, I'll call it, uh, was not a big deal when my father was around in the 20s, 30s, and 40s because they were mostly small businesses uh, and some of the associations certainly did own real estate, but they poured their money into the services and helping new immigrants find housing and get jobs. So it was really this uh, very closed-in parallel universe to the white society around it. Um, where we see the open class conflict came during the civil rights era on, uh, when there became a young generation of second or perhaps even third generation uh, Chinese American and Asian American activists uh, inspired by the civil rights movement uh, to look at the, the root community and root American community of Chinatown and saying, wow, there are problems here, problems of overcrowding, problems of low paying jobs, problems of affordable housing. So beginning in about the mid-70s, uh, some of these young college students, having learned about sort of equalizing opportunities and making sure that their communities were uh, holistically healthy, uh, said, let's do something about affordable housing. Let's do something about uh, better paying jobs. Let's look after our elderly. So. Beginning then in the social service agencies in Chinatown, which I call the new civil rights organizations, there, there has been in Chinatown, quote, civil rights organizations dating all the way back to the turn of the century, uh, the 19th and the 20th, but their concern was Chinese American citizenship and recognition uh, their place in America, which was a very noble mission, but had very little to do with job opportunities or affordable housing and things like that. Right. This it's more new, focused on actual just survival, survival and staying in the country. Okay, correct. Yeah. The new generation starting in the mid-70s in Oakland with a group like uh, the East Bay Asian Local Development Corporation, EBALTSI, uh, Asian Health Services, and organizations like that. Oh, uh, Asian Law Caucus, right? Yeah, That's Asian, very much so. For <laughs> Asian Law Caucus were these young 20-something who were very smart. A lot of Berkeley grads, I know, in that crew. A lot of Cal grads. Um, I went to Cal a little earlier, and but I... When I, when I learned about their existence, because I was a little older than they were, I applauded their efforts and began writing about what they were trying to do. Uh, so that began a more focus on the class differentiations within 
a Chinese-American community. Of course, there have always been business types, and they wanted to maximize uh, their properties. So uh, the case that I know best was the building, uh, the Oriental-style building at the corner of 7th and Webster. It used to be started in the 1920s uh, as a nightclub. Is that uh, the building that ended up being Legendary Palace? Correct. Okay, it yeah. became a dim sum house. Right. But the great dim sum, by the way. It was great dim sum. <laughs> really, I missed that, that place. Was, that was after uh, this dispute. I believe it was like in the late 80s into the early 90s. It was owned by a prominent Chinatown family that had other properties. They were uh, were attorneys and real estate people in that family. At the time of the dispute, the upper floors, upper floor was an SRO, uh, a single room occupancy uh, for low income, mainly Chinese seniors. Uh, rents were low and they had a common kitchen. Mm -hmm. Below were a bunch of retail outlets, not a restaurant per se, grocery store and other retail outlets. And uh, one of the Chinese-American uh, civil rights groups, I think it was called the Oakland Chinese Community Council then, called Family Bridges Today, uh, its leader uh, and uh, his constituents were saying, we work with some of the elders upstairs. The building owner wanted to basically get rid of the SRO Chinese seniors because he wasn't earning enough money and he, want, he had an idea of maximizing the assets by doing something fancier. So they got into a intra-Chinatown dispute. I learned of it. I wrote a number of columns for the Tribune about this. But the tension between business interests and uh, social service interests is always going to be there, especially for the use of buildings and property. One of the reasons why Oakland Chinatown and, and other Chinatowns throughout America have been in the news, especially in the last year, is for this very unfortunate trend of a lot of high-profile um, attacks on Asian elders uh, being recorded on video, and it's just horrifying and tragic to see. And because we're having this conversation about uh, anti-Asian discrimination and this long history of oppression against all people of color, but in this case, you know, Chinese-American people, is there a connection between these attacks and this long history? Yeah, there is a connection um, that goes back centuries. Let me mention uh, Stuart Creighton Miller. He wrote a, a book about the racism against Chinese before the gold rush. And he traces it to the reports of three groups of Americans that went to China in the mid to late 1700s, leading up to the 1800s. And the three groups were missionaries, diplomats, and sea merchants. 
because they were the Ameri white Americans who got to China, again, through uh, the Pearl River Delta, Guangzhou, Canton. And the essence of what he said was, uh, while they had some good things to say about China, many of the things were stereotyped. So already, before most Americans even knew Chinese were here, there was a built-in uh, racist stereotype about the Chinese of the 18th and 19th century. Uh, then came the gold rush, and then the Chinese Exclusion Act. And what's interesting then is the Chinese in America were such a teeny portion of the population, and most of them were here in California or in the West. Almost none. There may have been a few in the East Coast at the time, but almost, almost knew none in person, didn't know anything. So they were taking stereotypes about the Chinese that were being reported uh, by the uh, Working Man's Party uh, that started in the 1870s in San Francisco. Right. Stories not only about how they're undercutting white labor, but also these sensationalized tales of opium dens attracting right. white women and things like that. And um, diseases, Right. speaking of relevance, mm -hmm. of these foreign diseases and funny dress Mm. and a language they couldn't understand. It, there's been a long history, right. and the violence against the uh, Chinese gold miners and Chinese throughout the 19th century and even into the 20th century, there were, you know, massacres um, throughout the West and extinction of uh, villages and uh, buildings. Even lynchings, right? Lynchings, very much so. So the, the, this isn't a new story uh, for those of us who study Chinese-American history. I think what's new, the linkage is there, so it's not new. Um, the newness is the visibility through social media, which has very interesting implications for all sorts of things in American life or world life today. Bill, when I lined up this interview with you the other day, I knew that there would be a lot of people uh, in the East Bay Yesterday audience who would have questions for you as well. And so I put out a question on Twitter letting people know that I was going to interview William G. Wong, the author of Yellow Journalist and uh, the Oakland's Chinatown history book. And uh, I'm going to read you some of the questions I got from, from folks. And uh, let's see what you got. <laughs> okay. So, this, so the first one comes from uh, Rashid Shabazz. And he's wondering, in early 20th century black newspapers in Oakland, there are often advertisements for various Chinese-American businesses. What interactions, uh, in parentheses, cooperation and or conflict, occurred between black and Chinese Oakland residents in the early 1900s? There was, um, as far as I can tell, not a lot of a lot of contact. There were small numbers of Chinese and small numbers of blacks at the time. And I do know uh, from my research into the uh, Chinatown lottery system and how it worked and who ran it, that some of the buyers of lottery tickets were 
African Americans living at that time in West Oakland uh, because one of the uh, sons of one of the lottery operators who was a teenager in those days used to run out with his father to West Oakland to both sell tickets and to give the results of the lottery tickets. So I don't know a lot about the interaction in the early 20th century. Right, right. And I know there was a Mexican uh, and Mexican-American community uh, kind of in, sort of in between those two zones as well at the time um, that, that basically got completely destroyed uh, by the 880 coming in. But uh, sort of in a related question, um, a Twitter user by the name of Tia No More, uh, who I believe is a very talented singer and performer, is... Wondering, and this is kind of like a related question, but the a relationship between sort of the Black Panther movement and uh, the quote-unquote yellow peril, right? Like Asian-American activists, I think, during the 60s and 70s. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because you, you're mentioning how there wasn't a lot of contact, maybe, uh, that you're aware of between the Black and, and Chinese American community in the early 20th century. But what about later, like during the civil rights era? And you talked about that a little bit in terms of sort of some of these social justice organizations, but what about the more like radical or militant groups during that era? There were um, some uh, more so-called radical uh, Chinese-American activists, the Chinese Progressive Association, for example, in San Francisco Chinatown, the E. Wall Kroon in New York's Chinatown. Uh, They were very much in line with the Black Panther value system. I wouldn't say they were the dominant. I think that the Asian American, young Asian American college students who were inspired and very attuned to the Martin Luther King movement of the 60s were more mainstream left than they were radical left. But there were elements within Chinatown in New York and San Francisco, and perhaps even in Oakland, although Oakland was less politically active than San Francisco. Uh, So I would say there was some, but not dominant. Okay. Um, This question comes from the Twitter account of Lincoln Square Park. Um, I think I know who runs that account. Um, shout out to Tiffany Ang, the, uh, the uh, granddaughter of uh, Raymond. So uh, Lincoln Square Park says, I think William Wong wrote the text for the Hall of Pioneers exhibit hidden in the Harrison slash Chinese Garden Park. If he was updating the exhibit today, who would he add? And for, for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with the Hall of Pioneers, there's a very prominent pagoda. It's kind of one of the few prominent examples of more traditional Chinese architecture in Oakland's Chinatown. That is that on the corner of 7th and Harrison, I want right. to say? Yeah, so, uh, and the Hall of Pioneers is, or was, tucked back away in there. I'm, it's, I'm sorry to say I'm not totally familiar with that exhibit, but um, can you explain to people what that is? And um, she's putting you on the spot here, but who would you add? (laughs) Um, The Pagoda building was uh, designed by um, uh, Henry Chang, uh, architect and former city council member. But before that, it was called Harrison uh, Railroad. It was first called Harrison Park. And it was one of the uh, green spaces that we Chinatown kids could play in. 
and I happened to have been born practically kitty-corner from it. Then it became Harrison Railroad Park, where a big uh, steam engine was placed, and still Chinatown kids would go there and climb on the train uh, engine. And then after that, uh, they removed the train engine, and it became uh, the site of the pagoda buildings that were designed and, uh, and then later built into the structure that I believe today is a senior center, I believe run by Family Bridges, the old Oakland Chinese community councils. And within the lobby are the 12 uh, Chinese pioneer plaques or uh, uh, placards that I did uh, draft the final version of. And to answer the question, the people I would uh, add would be uh, post-World War II uh, pioneers in the newer uh, Oakland Chinatown. And among those I would uh, add would be Sherry Hirota, the longtime executive director, chief executive of Asian Health Services, Lynette Lee, uh, one of the longest standing and one of the uh, top executive directors of East Bay Asian Local Development Corp, which is a very fine agency. I would put Ted Dang, uh, who was one of the founders of Ebalsi, and uh, Ted operates as a uh, real estate developer manager as well as a social service uh, leader because he still sits on the board of Ebaldsi, I believe, and other social service agency boards. Um, and all modesty aside, I would put myself on there for being a pioneer Asian-American, Chinese-American journalist uh, at the Oakland Tribune. Absolutely. Uh, those I think, are I think among, your place is well-deserved yeah. in the Hall of Pioneers, so yeah. I think that... Uh, no modesty needed on that one. I think you, I think you've earned your place in the in the next version of the of the Hall of Pioneers. Uh, we've got a question coming from a uh, a local writer by the name of Alex Park. Who, if I I'm trying to get this right, but I think he's working on a book right now about the impact of Kentucky Fried Chicken in China, something along those lines. We were at a party when he told me, and we might have had a couple cocktails. So my memory's a little fuzzy, but I know he's written some really interesting things about the history of. Kentucky Fried Chicken's uh, rise in, uh, in in China, but he's curious about, and we talked about this a little bit earlier. But he, his question is, quote, how prevalent was slash is organized crime in Oakland's Chinatown? Uh, it was prevalent for sure in my father's era, and even before that, linked to some of the tongs which do have a bad reputation outside of Chinatown. Within Chinatown, it has a mixed reputation in those days. There were three or four different types of organizations in the old Chinatown. Some were the higher end, Chamber of Commerce, uh, six companies, uh, leaders in uh, either the regional associations or some of the family uh, clan associations. But there was also a mixture of some of these men leaders who were also members of Tongs. So there would be 
a very interesting intermix. But some of the Tongs did get into criminal activities. They ran uh, the gambling establishments, uh, not just the lotteries, but the Mahjong games and the Pai Gao games. Some of them ran drugs and prostitution, and some of them employed young members of the Chinatown uh, youth communities to be protectors. And some of the uh, men in the Tongs were so-called bu hao doi, which is the Cantonese, Hoisanese phrase for hatchet men uh, or high binders. Those things did happen in Oakland and other Chinatowns because some stories that my sisters tell me about my father, who was in the lottery business in the 30s, that he was a member of a Tong and for some periods he would need to leave home because of a threat of a Tong war and he would either go to Marysville or Stockton and be away for a week or two at a time, maybe even longer. So that was a situation in the first half of the 20th century. In the 60s and 70s, there were some well-reported activities of youth gangs tied to some of the Tongs that still existed, a very well-known uh, massacre at the Golden Dragon restaurant in San Francisco, uh, Labor Day weekend of 1977, got a huge amount of press way outside of Chinatown because two rival gangs uh, had it out in the early morning or midnight hour. Five people were killed, 11 were wounded, and scared the bejesus out of a lot of people, including tourists. Some of the injured were tourists. No gang members were killed, and uh, that really opened up a lot of uh, eyes to the existence of uh, youth gang warfare. But I wrote a column at the Wall Street Journal a month or two after the incident. Uh, the Wall Street Journal didn't run local crime stories, but I was a reporter in the San Francisco Bureau yearning to write more about my own community, but I had to find a way into this story because most of the stories were not about Asian American themes at all. Uh, so I found a way of using the Golden Dragon Massacre as a way of looking at the existence of institutional racism against Chinese, creating this parallel universe that was mostly underground, um, which then fostered some legal and some illegal activities and rivalries among the associations. So some of the Tongs got into trouble and some of the youth who came over from the lower classes uh, didn't find America to be very welcoming. Therefore, uh, they hung out together and found a way of, of making use of their energy and their ambitions and did illegal stuff. So those conditions to me were all a product of the larger institutional systemic racism that the Chinese and Asian communities have suffered in America 
for for many many generations. I mean, no matter what race or ethnicity you are, people are going to do what they have to to survive, right? So. Well, William G. Wong, thank you so much for talking to me for so long today. It's been a real pleasure to have this conversation. Uh, for anyone who's interested, you can find the books Yellow Journalist and uh, Oakland's Chinatown at bookstores or at the Oakland Public Library, of course. And I think that'll do it. Thanks again for talking to me. really appreciate it. Thank you, Liam. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue. I want to give a really special shout out to three people who've written very nice things about this show lately. Pendarvis Harshaw at KQED, Dan Gentile at SFGate, and Dorothy Lazard at the Oakland Public Library. Thanks, guys. You all wrote some really lovely articles about me and this show, and I'm very grateful. Just wanted to say that. Uh, to you guys, the listeners, if you want to read those pieces, I've got them linked on my website, where you can also subscribe to my newsletter, where I share uh, articles like that and other articles not about me, just about other local history stuff. Uh, while you're at my website, if you want, you can donate to keep the show alive, like I said at the top. I just simply wouldn't be able to do this without your support. So big, big high five <laughs> to all the Patreon donors. Uh, if anybody else out there wants to support my ability to keep making new shows, go to eastbayyesterday.com, hit that donate link, and uh, even if you can't afford to, to do that, just share it on social media, tell your friends, spread the word. That's the only way I do marketing, so I, I really rely on you listeners thank you so much for for everything you've been doing over the past five years to let folks know about this show uh the music for this episode came from lo ka ping chan wai fat and a local producer justin lee the theme song came from anatech that's gonna do it thanks for listening i'll be back soon with more episodes of east bay yesterday <laughs>